Hello and welcome to the latest bonus episode of The Dive Down, a Magic the Gathering podcast focused on the latest decks, trends, strategies, and streamers for the casual spike. My name is Stanislav here in Chicago, and with me on the line from the World Wide Web, it's our special guest today, the one and only Ryan Spain. Hello, thanks for having me. Also, Shane Beeps is here, but he's always here. Yeah, I'm just I'm just lingering. Boring. <laughs> Ryan, thanks for thanks for coming on. Uh, we are hyped to uh, to get you recruited for this bonus episode. We'll we'll talk more about what you're all about in a second. Um, Stan, Ryan, I have to say this before I forget. It's such a privilege to have you here because you are, in my eyes, one of the MTG podcast godfathers. Yeah. Your, oh, thanks. your inspiration on us and so many other content creators, but I can only speak for ourselves, is immeasurable. So I'm really excited to pick your brain about magic content right on, arena. Thanks. Very kind. Yeah, our our third our third co-host, Dave, uh, he has been in, engaged in the game for longer than both of us. And he he definitely wanted us to say that he was one of the OG uh, supporters of LR. I think he's been listening since episode one. Nice. So he 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 yeah he listened all through the Ryan Spain. Era Orion, as Marshall likes to say, <laughs> not not many Ryans left. Mostly just Luises out there now. Man, he's been on for so long. LSV. Right. Man, just retire right. already. Uh, so to, let's just jump in. We got a lot of questions for you. Sure thing. And a lot of topics that you can speak on. So what we the way we like to the icebreaker that we like to have is called Inside the Grinders Studio, taking cues from the classic show that you may have seen. Um, and so it's just five fast questions about MTG. So let's start it off. Oh, you can try. I'm not sure yeah. I do fast, but you can try. <laughs> I know I know that feeling, uh, Ryan. Um, what's your favorite card? My favorite card is Warp World uh, as a constructed guy. Uh, limited, my favorite card is the best bomb in the set, pack one, pick one. But... <laughs> My favorite card in Constructed is Warp World. I'm very much a Timmy Johnny type of Constructed player. I'm still spiky, but I want... I, I know I said all three there, but <laughs> I like to try and win with decks that are either being combo, you know, big or comboy or both. And nothing is quite as big and comboy as Warp World. Not super powerful, but uh, when I worked at Wizards, I did a lot of spell slinging. And my favorite spell slinging deck was my modern Warp World brew that basically won by uh, looping all the permanents in my deck over and over again until generating an arbitrarily large amount of mana. Didn't need much because my win condition was is, I still have the deck, Spawn Sire of Ulamog. And this is uh, casual play, right? I'm, I'm doing spell slinging. And Sponsor of Ulamog says for 20 mana, you can cast, cast, not any number of Eldrazi spells you own from outside the game. Uh So when I would, uh, when I would fire that off, I would reach into my backpack, pull out a second deck box. that was just like a four inch thick stack of Eldrazi cards. And including, of course, the big three to give me an extra turn. And then I would just turn a stack of Eldrazi cards sideways. <laughs> uh, annihilate for a million. You know, that sounds good. Yeah, I good would times. I would volunteer to read the text on Warp World. But this is an M10 card with nine lines of text. I think they'd like shrink the font to three points. So you I all can, can TLDR it for you. Basically, it's, yeah, it's an eight mana sorcery that says everybody count their permanence, shuffle up, and then 
deal off that many cards off the top of your deck and put all the permanents you found back on the battlefield. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I like it. I wonder how we would evaluate this card during spoiler season. <laughs> it's it's the red mythic or the red <laughs> the big red rare of the set. Yeah. What, what about your least favorite card, Ryan? I would say winter orb, stasis, or basically any powerful effect that says stop playing magic. Mm-hmm. I think those were bad early card designs, and I'm really glad to see wizards have gotten far away from them. I mean, maybe it's kind of cheap to to name a card type that they really don't make anymore, but I, I like to observe why they don't make that anymore. It's just not fun to say win by making your opponent sit there and watch you. That's just not good gaming. So if you're drafting a cube and you're handed a winter orb, you're not taking it and building around I, it? I have never played winter orb in cube, and I, I grudgingly include it in my, my own when, when called for, but uh, not my style. Do you have a favorite format? Well, speaking of, vintage cube, I mean, obviously I'm a limited guy, so my favorite formats are all in the limited realm, uh, although I do enjoy constructed. I'm not purely limited, uh, but vintage cube in the right quantity the 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 beauty of magic is its variety and you know the same way your favorite food wouldn't be your favorite food if you had to eat it every single day uh and same same with vintage cube so i i bet you (laughs) you know if you had to eat if you like take your favorite food and if you never got to eat anything else again boy you'd be begging for something new pretty soon so same thing you know uh, i love a vintage cube but I don't want to do it all the time. What I want is variety. I think that's what keeps this game so amazing. Yeah, right. I like this one a lot because we all have the big, big, big misplays in our history. Do you have a, do you have a big misplay that you think about when you're trying to fall asleep, uh, keeping you up at night? Recently, it was uh, selling my Yawgmoth's Will Judge promo out of my vintage cube when I accidentally listed uh, one too many on my uh, retail efforts. And then watched the price quadruple before I could get another copy. So that's my biggest regret of, of, of late. My biggest misplay, for sure. Um, perhaps that or uh, deciding that uh, I had missed the boat when Bitcoin leapt above 5,000. That's another misplay. I'm joking, of course. Like The thing with misplays, like I think misplays as you mean it, which is to say, what have I done in a game that stands out to me as a, as a massive mistake? I don't play with high enough stakes with enough regularity to have something stand out like that. I mean, mm-hmm. to me, a big mistake is a, is a game, a game costing mistake, but that it cost you an important game. Right. And I frankly don't play enough important games to have mistakes stand out me, stand out at me as huge to me. They're just the normal everyday. Oops. I lost that match. I should have won it. Oh, well, I'm going to try and internalize what I did there and avoid it next time if possible. I mean, I, I uh, I did a game losing punt uh, just past this last weekend at my first physical draft in a long time. We did mm, a, nice. a garage open air masked up garage draft and uh, <laughs> totally punted away the match. But you know that's like the highest stakes that I play for, so it's uh, it's hard to say that any mistake is huge because it's magic. Uh, it's it's I I don't put myself in positions in magic where the mistakes are huge. All right, last question for our lightning round. Do you have a favorite piece of MTG slang? I mean, I got to go with the vanilla test because I coined it. And I think it's <laughs> I think it's cute that I like that it's made its way into other CCGs. You know, I see mm-hmm. Hearthstone players and 
other collectible card game players talking about the vanilla test. I'm like, cool. I've, I've broadened my, my, my idea has expanded past magic, but I also like, uh, uh, to, to not be so self-serving. I think, a, a an underrated piece of magic slang is drop. Uh, we just throw that around. Like it's the way it should be said. That's your two drop. That's your three drop. How many five mm-hmm. drops do you have? Right. That, drop i mean that that's just a thing that uh, got thrown into the world a long time ago and we have embraced it as the way we talk about things but it's a nice single syllable way to con- to to say that express that cmc feeling and i believe uh, worth wolpert coined that term or at least he believes he did i remember talking <laughs> to him about that well i believe that i invented putting oranges in the blue moon beer so well i'll give it to you <laughs> no no wait. i'm not i'm not going to push back on you uh ryan as we kind of uh, insinuated and uh, teased on the beginning of the episode, you've had a long journey with magic. True. Can you, I know it's not going to be brief, but because uh, we're, we're going to get into the details along the way, do you help the listeners understand the, the stops for you on the yeah, train like, of magic? Yeah, I can give you the, the, as the, crow, the, bird, the bird's eye view here of, of my life with magic. I was taught to play magic by Marshall Sutcliffe when he was a mere... 14, 15 year old kid. Uh, he was best friends with my cousin, still is. And the, my cousin and Marshall were playing magic. I'd never heard of it. This was 94 uh, ish. And we played, uh, Marshall taught me to play off the top of his 100 card, all of my red green cards deck. And we just both played off of that. And I was instantly in love. I started scouring cards the next day discovered soul ring mm. and it was like whoa i'm i'm gonna get four of these then i discovered restricted that was a, that was a new thing i <laughs> i learned that day too i was pretty proud that within two days i had found that soul ring was the card i wanted in my deck very, very you, you can I, do would, I, don't, I don't i don't think i ever would have figured that like when I, I was playing around that era too and man i had my card evaluation skills were not good well, I, 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 I saw that the cost was one and the production was two. I did the math on that and it, it all checked out. So uh, that was one of my early favorite powerful cards. But then, interestingly, we, uh, we fell off magic, that all three of us, like uh, a couple weeks later. Like, so basically, I learned right before the next gen uh, TCG came out, Star Trek Next Generation. And we actually all liked that show, so we got into that. And and I got actually much deeper into Star Trek Next Gen before I ever got deep into Magic. But that game fizzled out a bit, and then uh, I got back into Magic with a buddy of mine and was in for good then. And it's been a part of my life ever since. I got into game design in 2000, 2001. I uh, I went from a a random tech job and, and basically talked my way into a job at uh, Hoyle uh, online working on the Hoyle products, you know, Hoyle PC card games, board games, casino games, and uh, got a, got a chance at game design there. And I told myself, you know what? I want to leverage. Okay. I'm in game design. Now my long-term goal is wizards of the coast. How do I work for Watsi? And I mean, it's not something I worked on every day to achieve that goal, but it was always in the back of my mind. How can I navigate my way to there someday? Because I was working on card, you know, digital card games right away in in my career, and uh, it was at a job a, a company later when I was working at Surreal Software, and we were working on an unshipped game called This Is Vegas. That's a whole different story. I don't know if you ever heard of that, but it's Mm-mm. This Is Vegas is one of the biggest 
ex most expensive unshipped games ever. I think the final <laughs> price tag was like in the 50 million range and it, and it never, oh uh, never saw the shelves, but it was, the idea was an open world, uh, adventure game, GTA style game set in Las Vegas. And I was hired as the gambling designer based on my experience with the Hoyle stuff. And at that point in time, because of the, the the nature of the game, we started up a poker group in uh, in the office, mm -hmm. and we would play at lunch, and then like once a week on Fridays, like we would play in the evenings, and uh, in the evening games, so we invite some friends from the outside, and actually Marshall uh, is someone who came and and played poker with us at my offices at Surreal, and it was at that time I had made a connection with. Uh, Aaron Forsyth that had, it was pretty arbitrary. I actually cold invited him to participate in my fantasy baseball league. And it had some, because he had introduced himself as a, uh, as the new director of magic. And in it, he had mentioned that he used to play fantasy, but doesn't anymore for time reasons. And it turns out like I had invented a, a format for fantasy that was specifically about that. Like, here's how to play fantasy without it dominating your time. And he actually said, sure, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'm in. I'm like, cool. I got Aaron Forsyth in my fantasy league. This is a nice step towards potential eventual, you know, this, it, it felt cool. And then um, I uh, I mentioned to Aaron one time in a, in a communication that we were, a friend of mine at work and I were going to start a magic league at work. Oh, yeah. And Aaron was like, oh, cool. Uh, can I say... Uh, can I send you some product? I'm like, yeah. <laughs> no, uh, no, no, Aaron. <laughs> I was like, yeah, that'd be great. And in my head, I'm like, awesome. Maybe you'll send like a booster box and we could totally draft off that for a couple, you know, we get a draft off that. And he, I told him that we had a lot of interest at work. He reached out to somebody. I got a shipment a week later with a case of Morningstar, uh, yeah, um, uh, Morningtide, case of Morningtide, two cases of Lorwyn, and uh, a bunch of uh, starter decks and, pre you know, the, the old school intro decks, right? Man, Aaron, I've been thinking about starting up a work league. <laughs> right? <laughs> so out there. I got, I was hoping to get one. He drops 24 booster boxes on me to run magic at this office. And we had so much extra, you know, surplus for it i was like marshall you gotta like might as well get get back into magic you taught me this game it's still great you know here have a have a sealed pool boom i get marshall sutcliffe back into magic and then uh we spend the next many months talking magic around the poker table limited was a revelation for marshall he had mm -hmm. left the game when limited wasn't a thing and mm -hmm. now suddenly drafting limited what is this i don't need to spend a bazillion dollars on a deck i can i i can show up yeah he loved it and it became poker became poker and then when both of us were out of a hand it became uh whip marshall into shape for limited you know and it was that that led to limited resources because we were um looking he was just like you know, this is good. This is great. This is really helpful for me. Why don't we? And I'm into. I, he was learning about podcasts and said, "Why don't we? Why don't we record it?" And uh, we decided to take a stab at that. We can get into deeper details on that later. But basically, then I co-created the Limited Resources podcast with Marshall. Uh, did that for a couple years, and then did find my way into Wizards. Uh, ironically, 
it didn't have like I don't think anybody I interviewed with at Wizards ever heard a single episode of Limited Resources. <laughs> it sounds like them with our podcast. Yeah, but I, I did get to speak to it though, right? I mean, it demonstrated that I cared enough to do this thing and and made this content, and it was successful. I could point out it as a successful thing, so it helped in that regard. But it was kind of funny that I I, I was hoping it would catch the eye. Of, it didn't really. It just uh, it was just uh, something on on the resume at the interview. Uh, but then I did. I ended up in uh, R and D for five years, uh, where I was primarily the digital liaison, helping R and D communicate better with Magic Online and vice versa, and helping improve uh, both products as a result. And then I moved on to the arena team for a couple of years, and then I left Wizards and started streaming in about uh, 2018, and have been doing that uh, since. Well, you know basically streaming and a small secondary market presence since then. Mm -hmm. We should probably mention that Ryan's Twitch channel is called Going Optimal. Well, that's right. Maybe I should mention that. You know, like, I, <laughs> like it shows you where I'm at on marketing, right? <laughs> oh, yeah, like I do this thing. You should check it out. It's great. I'll uh, write it down on a paper for you. I mean, you mentioned LR, Limited Resources. You were one of the, you know, the creators along with Marshall of this. What were the early days of Limited Resources like like what what were the initial challenges that you maybe faced or opportunities that you felt you had things like that not a lot of challenges really we hit it at the right time in the sense that uh, it, there was not a lot going on there i mean one of the reasons marshall wanted to do it it was like boy this is kind of a young art this podcasting thing and there's not a lot of top level content out there for magic he did listen to a lot of podcasts and found that uh, there was some some decent stuff, but nothing in the realm that we loved. There was nothing unlimited, and and that the generally the bar was low enough that we felt like, why not? Let's take a again. It, it, it um like a lot of things with my magic content. It it almost springs from the love first, and then being like, hey, you know, I love talking to Marshall about this stuff. He loves talking to me. Why don't we hit record? You know, mm -hmm. or, or you know, and and see where it goes. And I think the lack of expectations. Marshall wasn't like, we need to do this. It's got to work because I want to leave my job and do yeah. magic content full time. It was not that at all. It was like, we like making stuff and let's make stuff together because that is nice and fun in and of itself. And again, we were doing this anyway, right? So there was a no burden on us to succeed. And the, the lack of burden to succeed let us just explore what was making it, what felt right to us. And, and that was the, uh, the early days were really fun in terms of establishing content. I mean, there's a lot of yeah. foundational stuff that, that the, sh the show just keeps using uh, from crack a pack to set reviews. I mean, I, I want to give credit to like Gary Wise as one of the early, early set reviewers really for limited. I don't know. He did start to finish every single card. I think on a couple of sets he did like Odyssey, I remember consuming Gary Wise's content, his articles, and and really finding that there was not a lot of uh, other stuff like that. So I was I wanted to model that, and that's how we got to like set review stuff. And I think that we are the first ones to do like hundred percent full card set reviews for limited of a of a new set. Yeah, the first episode I listened to of LR myself is when I got back into Magic in. 2014 and uh cons was just coming out mm. and i listened to the set review episode of cons like four times you know it's like three it's like three wow. and a half it's dedication like, well, well i mean like i didn't get it 
Like, you know how long it took me to remember the color combinations of Jeskai, Mardu? So, I mean, like, all that kind of stuff. It's like, it's like, what, what, which colors are those again? Like, what, what, what does mm-hmm. enemy pair? Like, that was the kind of stuff that, like, you know, and then when you, when you realize as a podcaster later, like, man, this is like a four hour long episode. Like, this is, this is a lot of conversation <laughs> about yeah. that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. But, like, what do you, what do you think? I mean, you had an open opportunity to do kind of whatever you want. Mm-hmm. With exactly. LR, right? Like you were sort of creating the concept of what a limited podcast was like, and you know, what do you think you you both learned in the process? Like, what did you learn that you think other people could could learn from you, and maybe avoid some potential pitfalls or mistakes, or you know, grab onto really easy opportunities in terms of content creation? Yeah, I would like say- pod- yeah, podcast creation, content creation. Again, start from the love and be realistic in your expectations of what you're going to get out of it. If you're not enjoying the process basically from day one, if you, if you don't enjoy the conversations you're having, uh, you should you should want to do it for no money because you're you're going to do it for no money to start. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And and then if you yeah, it's expectations. You know, expectations are are something I I touch on a lot, even on my my stream. And I know Marshall's touched on it recently on limited resources, but expectations drive happiness in life. Mostly happiness is expectations. The delta between expectations and reality is is happiness. So if you have lower expectations and then your expectations are exceeded, you're really happy. And if you have high expectations and you come up short, you kick yourself and you're beat up and you're mad. And so really when it comes to content creation, set your expectations for I want to learn something about content creation. I want to learn what it is to do this. I want to see what it feels like. Success for me is getting some podcasts out there for the world to try so that I've known, you know, if if that's your bar, you're going to succeed. And then you get to see what happens there and set new goals. You can set new goals. All right, I did it. I launched my podcast. We have three episodes out. Now what am I going to do? Now what's the goal? Now, you know, you can. it doesn't have to be that... Uh, you know, blinded. You don't have to, I'm not going to decide till tomorrow. But the point is, expectations are going to drive how you feel about those results. And if the only thing you're expecting of yourself is uh, to accomplish this first step, you're going to set yourself up for success and be able to take it step by step. But as a broad strokes, I'd say, be as tight as you can on your, like plan your content. Don't just go in cold and and hope that it goes okay. Plan what you're going to talk about and then be consistent. I think part of our success was that we just didn't go away and we launched a podcast on the same darn day, every day, every week, endlessly. Mm-hmm. And it's that kind of consistency that keeps an audience coming back to, you know, if you have quality content and consistent delivery of it, your audience will build. We have a bunch of questions about what it was like working on arena, but I, I have one last question on this content kick. Mm-hmm. So Ryan, you mentioned that, you mostly work as a streamer, content producer now with some secondary market stuff on the side. Do you think that your experience as a podcaster and maybe even working on the arena team contributed to you know some of your success today as a streamer in a way that allows you to do that sustainably? Absolutely. It was important to have the background in content creation before I wanted to pursue it uh, further after Wizards. Uh, there, you don't. As long you just have to have your reasons for doing content, and if you're there for the experience or for the, yeah, did can I do this? Hey, I did it. I I, I want to try this. That's fine. 
But if you are looking to make it your career, make it a long-term thing that you're hoping to generate revenue on, you really need to be able to answer the question, why me? Uh, why, uh, why me and, and not, because there's a lot of people who can do, who can sit in front of a mic and talk. What are the, why you? And why is, why do I have a feeling like that this could be successful? And frankly, one of the reasons was that I had untapped capital with limited resources, effectively that uh, by going from limited resources into wizards, I left a legacy of content creation that I could effectively pick up again. Hmm. And I also knew that I would be able to, that Marshall would have me back on the show and that I had things to say and that I could reintroduce myself to the limited resources audience and direct them to my content and have a shot at building that audience. So you don't need to have any of that if you're looking for things experientially. But if you don't have that, you need to ask yourself, basically, how am I building this audience? Where, where is this audience coming from? How am I going to make it known to them that I exist? And how am I going to get eyeballs on me? And, and then once you get the eyeballs on you, it's up to you to keep them there. You know, that's what I talked to Marshall about. And he was like, oh, yeah, I'll, I'll send you an audience. It's up to you to keep them. But we can, <laughs> we can, uh, we can talk. We'll have you on the show and, and let everybody know. And I don't, if I didn't have that uh, opening boost of being able to appear on LR and have people notice me, I don't think I would have tried to do this as a serious endeavor. Um, and, and, but that's the difference in the same way that when I started out, when, when I made LR, I wasn't trying to do it as a quote, serious endeavor, right? The, the whole texture of that changed because I had a past that I, that I could rely on and I had what I felt were good answers to the question, why me? I have insider Watsy information. Mm -hmm. I have an audience uh, waiting for me effectively from limited resources who will, who a bunch of whom will give me a shot. Uh, I have a different flavor. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm old man magic guy. I'm a, <laughs> there's not a lot of magic boomers streaming, right? So I'm kind of the, uh, the, uh, uh, I'm among the olds on, on, on Twitter. Yeah. Dave and on, I know all about Twitch. that. Oh, you don't, youngsters! Come on now, <laughs> sit down. I turn forty nine next week. How about how are you? Oh, man, doing? We're, yeah, we're in our early forties. Besides <laughs> this young guy. Ah, uh, so there you go. Uh, but basically, I had I had answers to that question: Why me? That I felt were good enough to take a shot. Very cool. Yeah. So speaking of that, Watsy insider knowledge you referenced, we mm -hmm. we'd love to talk a little bit. We know that you were involved. Uh, both working in Watsi R&D and with Arena. And because Arena has become more of a focus for us and our audience, um, you know, for a while we were dabbling with Arena and then, you know, it was only draft and standard, only draft, but because that's not the format we focused on for our sure. pod, of course. And then, and the monetization was a little bit challenging for us to kind of really dive in, but then historic caught on last year and became more of a focus, um, both because of the coronavirus and for Watsi for being their digital platform. It's a non-rotating format we could focus on. And so we decided to buy in late last year. And that's why I think us and our audience are interested in picking your brain about mm -hmm. Arena and, and working at Watsi, stuff like that. Um, yeah. But before we get right into into that, like, what were the, what do you think the biggest projects you worked on while you were at Watsi were? Well, the, certainly the largest was the big Magic Online uh, UI overhaul. The, 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 the current version of Magic Online launched at while I was there, and I was... That's the, V4 or whatever? Yeah, V4. Uh, that, we never called it that 
in the building. That's how, but, but yes, the uh, V4 effectively is what you're thinking of. And that was a, a major challenge. It's uh, magic online is such a beast. It's a, it's an incredible product. I can't, it's 20 years old. I mean, <laughs> it's, it's, and, you know, it's an architecture that none of us can possibly understand. Right. I think it's, uh, it's really tough to understand how difficult, working on that software is given the legacy code involved and the the Jenga tower risks of of making changes on that stuff but it needed an, an overhaul for a lot of reasons and it was already underway when I got there but getting getting the new interface to magic online was my biggest project uh, second biggest relates to that uh, and this is the this is the thing that I took a victory lap around the building for. I literally ran around the building because I said I would when it when it launched. And that was the reintroduction of leagues to Magic mm. Online, because leagues and the uh, the ability to play one match at a time instead of setting aside. Yeah. I can't even believe I had to say this anymore. But there was a time when if you wanted to play in an event on Magic Online, you set aside half your day. You're setting aside four hours to make sure that you have all the time to play it, that is not acceptable in modern gaming to, to ask that of your player base. So I, that was one of my interview questions, frankly. Like I, I was asked, you know, what, what, what do you think the most important changes to Magic Online would be? And uh, my number one was bringing back leagues to chop up play into, into smaller bite-sized pieces. And when uh, we finally launched leagues, I indeed took a victory lap around around the building. Do you still play MTGO ever? <laughs> no, <laughs> that's kind of funny. Like I try, <laughs> I uh, especially when there's like Vintage Cube and stuff that only it offers as a as a digital offering. But I go in. I even have resources on it. I just I can't do it. I I am now an arena player. Mm. I like the interface, the the gameplay. I just. I just like so snappy. Yeah, it's fun. It's it's pretty. Yeah, it's got an auto tapper. And you know, if I desperately need vintage cube, I will uh, meet up with my friends and, and do it in person or watch. I don't mind watching uh, Magic Online. I'll, I'll I love hanging out with Luis and Marshall or whomever while they're streaming Magic Online and and getting vicarious thrills that way. But it's a very daunting app. It was actually. I was such an expert with it. I always felt like uh, I knew going in and, and for my time at Wizards that I had played more Magic Online than anybody in that building hmm. because I had been playing daily since it launched and I was older than most of the people in that building. And uh, I just knew that thing forward, backwards, up and down, which is a, ben a blessing and a curse when you're working on it because it can be easy to forget how daunting it is for someone who doesn't know it up, down, left and right and to capture that experience. So yeah, it was, uh, those were the biggest projects that were the focus of my work. But I also, in terms of just, out of, you know, my, my, my credits list, I was a designer on the original modern masters. That was one of, that was my first set design mm. and that was really fun. That was well it loved. Was, I remember. Yeah. And, uh, I, I don't, I can't take, Huge credit. I, I was I was definitely there doing it, but Eric Lauer was the was the driver there. I remember a, a, a relatively new to the room, Sean Main and me, also new to the room, were the co-designers with Eric Lauer on that. But really, I always described it as uh, Eric Lauer was our New York taxi cab driver. <laughs> 
you know, winding his way wildly towards the deadline and Sean and I are in the back seat getting <laughs> sloshed left and right, <laughs> shouting out suggestions and, ah, maybe that way, ah, try it. But he was the master. It, Eric was at the wheel of that one. And uh, I learned a ton from uh, from participating in that. Uh, and then I was, uh, my other design credits are uh, Born of the Gods and Dominaria and... Uh, Dominaria was a cup of coffee. I wasn't on that for the whole thing. Uh, but Born of the Gods and Fate Reforged are the other two sets that I was mm -hmm. uh, on the design team for. And those were more deep mm -hmm. and, you know, whole time projects for me. And that was really interesting. Yeah. What What was your involvement in, in the arena development? Because I know there was something there, right? Yeah, I was the uh, systems designer, lead systems which is basically you've got uh, your your interface stuff, you've got your economy stuff, and you've got the fundamental systems around which the economy it works. You know the uh, what are these? What are we going to offer uh, in terms of play experiences? What are uh, what is what are the needs of the uh, the uh, collection building? That's more of the UI territory. But I was in like. Uh, uh, what kind of rewards are we creating play for players? Like I wasn't the one defining the economy in terms of how it balanced out, how, you know, how, how wizards makes money off of it. But I was heavily involved in things like, well, what is, what does rank look like in, mm. uh, in this game? What does a season look like in this game? And what, what are the ongoing things that we're offering to players to keep them engaged? So that basically you had, the way we kind of split it up with like, there's the battlefield, there's in-game, and then there's the stuff around the game. And I was around the game. So does that mean you weren't necessarily even coding? You were kind of thinking no. about it more abstractly. Yeah, I'm a designer. I have no coding chops whatsoever. I have spent uh, 20 years in the game industry, and I always say that I was in a constant trust fall with my engineers because yeah. uh, when they tell me, I can do this. I can't do this. This is hard. This is easy. I'm just like, I got to trust you. I can't call yeah. you on anything. And nothing to the layman, to the layperson makes any sense in that. Like, it's amazing to me as a designer, as a low-tech designer, I think, well, this should be easy. And they're like, no, no. <laughs> you've, you've picked something impossible. And I'm like, well, this is going to be incredibly hard. And they're like, oh, yeah, I can get that done tomorrow. No problem. Yeah, you just, it's amazing how wrong I can be about expectations of difficulty when it comes to coding. Um, but it's still, so yes, I needed to work, uh, I needed to communicate intent and ideas to the incredible devs who would then make it a reality. So how do you engage with Arena right now? Is it all draft? Do you do any constructed play on Arena? I'm mostly draft, but I do enjoy keeping up with standard. And I'm a, I just, I love net decking and I, I, I'm not one to brew too much uh, at this point. I, I like to check out any of those resources out there for popular decks and just give them a spin. And I really like doing that, especially uh, I it's part of how, you know, the approach of the free to play model, which I think you're, we're going to get to this later. So I'm not going to get too deep into it now. But uh, I do enjoy constructed as part of the my, my personal economic approach to MTG Arena. And so it's important when uh when standard is out of whack, I, I feel it a bit, uh, but not as nearly as much as, as, of course, dedicated constructed players, but it does affect me as well. But I'm also 
pretty bulletproof on magic because I am in for the uh, limited. And if the if the limited set is underwhelming, well, that usually means I don't want to draft it the 40th time, mm-hmm. right? And then, <laughs> so fine, it fades and then a new thing comes along. Whereas constructed, a broken card gets printed in standard and you're stuck with it for yeah. until they ban it or until two years, right? So uh, mistakes in constructed are a lot more oppressive to magic players than mistakes in a, in a limited format that doesn't quite live up or whatever. You mentioned the economy, and this might be a, a nice time to segue into it, especially maybe through the framework of your current pinned tweet on at Ryan Spain on Twitter, which I think mm-hmm. is like a nice little level one resource. If you want to be a free-to-play person on Arena, look at Ryan's Twitter. First thing, you know, first, second, and third thing you should know about trying to build a collection, right? Or just optimizing yeah. your Arena experience. I'd love to touch on these really quick to maybe get at some of the why behind yeah. the recommendations you're making. Absolutely. Let's do it. First recommendation for players who have dailies, cycle the 500 gold reward daily every time. Mm-hmm. And I think the reason you recommend that is because you might roll into a 750 gold reward daily. Yeah, you're trying. it doesn't matter what the quest is rewarding you for doing. I don't care if you like white green decks and it says 500 gold for white green, cycle that doesn't matter. Uh, you just are trying to turn 500 into 750. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, they haven't shared the numbers, but Chat and I decided that it felt like about one in five. Mm-hmm. So it basically clicking the 500 quest once a day is an act that's worth about 50 gold, right? Because about one in every five times you're going to turn it to a 750. So just the act of clicking that button is plus 50 gold. I love gold. Yeah. <laughs> Especially that sweet, sweet fake gold. <laughs> um, and of course, you have always keep at least one empty quest slot. And that's just exactly. because you lose opportunities to make gold. Otherwise. Yeah, that's yeah. a big loss. That's that's like that's many times of clicking for 50 gold. Exactly. Right. Basically, overnight or whenever they do it on a 24 hour cycle, uh, the system checks to see if you have a an empty quest slot. And if so, it's filled with a new one. And if not, you get the existing three. And anytime you hit that point and the existing three are there, you've lost, well, 550 gold again because mm-hmm. that that is on average worth 550 to get a quest. And that's mm-hmm. a huge loss. So yeah, uh, making sure you play to the point, and this is to maximize. I, I also want to pull back and say that fundamentally, my major top line advice is play magic to have fun. Decide yeah. what you love about magic and then we can reverse engineer the, the most optimal way for you to enjoy that. But the moment that you find yourself doing things as homework because you feel like you're supposed to, because this is what optimizes my fake money, then you're, you're probably worse off. Like, yes, maybe your your gold is more optimized, but I doubt your brain is at that point. So I just want to pull back to that. I think magic players especially um, don't always think about the value of their time. Right. So like time I spend thinking about stuff, like time I spent tracking something, like I was trying to min-max drafting versus opening packs for like collection building and then it was just like i'm spending more time trying to min max this and like tracking when i'm opening and stuff like that exactly you know i'm just i just need to be buying packs because i'm not i don't have i I need i can't focus on draft with the the way we it's great to be self-aware about that it's gonna it's gonna make you so much happier to know to to be honest with yourself about that and one of the things i identify though is that some people me included like system gaming like it, it it actually I enjoy extracting max value out of out of systems as an end in itself. And if I and that's good because if I looked at 
again, just the straight dollar value of these maximizations, they're not that worth it. But it can be it can make it can be a sense of well-being and, and happiness to know that, haha, I'm doing this right. Mm-hmm. But again, just check in with your happiness and make sure that that the process and what you're doing is part of what's bringing joy to your day and not this thing. It's like, oh, yeah, on my to do list is to make sure I don't leave one of those stupid quests open or else Ryan will be mad. It's like, I don't care if you leave <laughs> a quest open. <laughs> I just want you to be happy. And if you want to play cheap magic, though, that's one of the things you got to do. Your second piece of advice, if you're a limited free-to-play player, play on a second account or stop for the day at four wins and a clear quest slot and no sealed. This is the one that's a little harder for me to understand. Why the second account? Why stop it after four wins and, and why do you hate sealed? Great question. And this is the, well, this is really the secret sauce for limited heavy players. It doesn't have to be limited only, but I, I, I call out limited free to play because if you are limited free to play, which is to say, I don't really play constructed at all, then you are now someone who does not care about collection building. And now if you don't care about consistency of collection, it doesn't really matter where you're playing. You're in it to draft, right? I'm in it for the experience of the start to finish draft experience. So if that's what you're in it for, then you got to ask yourself, uh, how mu- what is my return on playtime? And for your first five wins or first four wins on arena, Wizards pays you pretty hefty gold to accomplish that. You get mm-hmm. 250 gold for your first win mm-hmm. and then 100 each for your next three. Mm-hmm. So you get 550 gold for winning four times. So it's like a quest's worth of value uh, for getting your four wins in a day. Then it drops off. Your fifth win is worth nothing. Your sixth win is worth 50, right? It, it just yeah. it tails off so quickly that the meat of it is in those first four games. And if you are cycling your quests, playing until you win four times on the account, taking advantage of free gold in the store, they do things like, uh, you know, buy 50, buy 500 gold for 50 gold, that kind of thing. Stonks. Yeah. Use your codes. You know, they, there's all these codes out there for, uh, for, for the store. Right. Basically, if you take advantage of all the ways that Wizards offers free gold to arena players, you can easily get to about 1,250 gold a day uh, per account, per account. So... Uh, if I split up my limited play and I play on this account till I win four times, then I hop over onto this other account that I haven't played it on at all today, and I start there, I'm getting all that benefit again. I'm getting, uh, you know, whatever gold per hour it is, is so much better to to do that again on a second account. Sure. So by uh, as someone who has, I, I, I run four accounts, but only because that's my peak. Like when a set comes out, when a set comes out, the most I ever want to play is to win. Like if I've win, if I win more, if I've won sixteen times on Arena today, the answer is not to open a fifth account; is to go do something else with your life today, right? So, yeah, are they named like clever things like Ryan Spain one two three four? No, it, well, I, I did this before I fully figured out my system. My recommendation to anybody now: Wizards doesn't really even care if your email is real. Sure. Uh, and and to wizards, like let's say you have a Gmail account that's um, you know whatever Ryan Spain at Gmail dot com. That's not my email address, by the way. I don't <laughs> know who that is, but it's not going to go to me. But I could just go, or, or let's say it was like Ryan Spain seventy two because I'm an old guy, right? So I could say uh, at Gmail, I could then go in for my second account and say my second account is ryA dot and, you know, you can just insert a period anywhere in your Gmail address. Yes. Wizards will see that as a new address. Right. And Gmail sees it as the same address. So 
through for through careful use of just inserting a punctuation in your in your default email address, you can create what Wizard sees as multiple addresses and what Gmail Gmail sees as the same address. So that makes it really easy to swap through uh, the accounts. Uh, but basically, the fundamental idea of the two account approach is that if you don't care very much about con collection consistency across accounts, you get paid way more to move your play to an account that is paying you full dollars, full gold for your activities rather than sticking on the one that is no longer paying you that, that win premium. Mm -hmm. And this is advice that when people who watch my stream have, have taken to, I have so many people come back and say, well, now I play for free. I, <laughs> I wasn't playing for free before. Now I'm playing for free. Thank you, Ryan. Interesting. And uh, yeah, so really, if you find yourself wanting to play more than four wins a day limited, you're going to you should think about opening a second account again, if it's worth it to you. If you're if you are uh, financially comfortable and just don't want the hassle, uh, you know, that, then that's like what Luis has said. Right. He's just not it doesn't matter that that's optimal. Optimal for him is not worrying about it. Right. Yeah. And and that's a stress, I think, too, is like you're saying for limited focus, you can get your 5,000 gold, you get your free drafts, and you can just do your, you don't care about having a standard collection necessarily mm -hmm. that you're going to build all your standard decks. It sort of happens incidentally, I imagine. It does. That's the thing. Uh, I mean, it depends on your win rate. If you have a low win rate, it's going to be tougher for you to achieve the results that I have. I'm not some superstar, but but I, I win, you know, a 60 to 70, let's call it 65-ish percent win rate. Well, that's a good win rate, Ryan. Yeah, uh, well, not not to the pros it isn't, right? It's mm -hmm. all relative, I suppose. But uh, no, it's a good win rate for a 50-50 game for sure. But the point is with the with the, with the the system of multiple accounts, you, you, can, um, you don't even need that kind of win rate. But with my win rate and with, like, I just finished uh, 4Xing my... Uh, my main account, I call it my main account. And that's the, the other thing I recommend is don't become a slave to your side accounts. Your side accounts are for extra magic. Your side accounts are for when your main account, you want to play beyond four wins on your main account. If you start getting in the mindset of, uh-oh, I can't go to bed yet. I haven't uh, spun the quest on my third side account. That, again, you're now making yourself less happy than right. more happy. But basically with my method, I have, I used to think of it in terms of I want to 4X the set. Now I just think of it in terms of I want to be able to play any deck I want whenever I want to. And I don't really care if I 4X the Mythics, for example. Uh, basically, I 4X every set, though, on rares just naturally by playing. And this is only drafting basically four times a week because my my main account is one that I only play on stream. And Monday through Thursday, I play against the system, and that's the four times a week. On Fridays, I play against chat. It doesn't even count towards uh, the, the, the golden stuff. And so I really think uh, it's it's a great way to to build your collection. You can still build a full collection is what I'm saying. In fact, like if you find another piece of advice, if you do find yourself, uh, if you like limited and find yourself at the point where when you open prize boosters on arena, you're getting the gem cards, right? Mm -hmm. A lot of people fist pump. Yes, I'm at gem. I'm at gem card level. To me, that's your sign that you're done drafting that format on that account. Because if you care about collection building, think of it this way. So the your entry fee for an event has some sort of return. Unless you're a top pro, it's negative, it's net negative on gems, right? Your gems are going down. And at the beginning of a format, your gems are going down, but you're earning some gold and you're also building a collection. 
Uh, once you are at the point where you're not collection building because the packs are just producing gem cards, those gem cards are still not enough to keep your net from going down. So you're still losing gems even though you are getting gems in the prize packs. So your choice is either I can either buy in today to 100% just steadily go down a little bit in gems or I can stop drafting this set on this account play standard, play historic, uh, grind my gold with the fun I enjoy in constructed, and then that account just builds up gold resources without spending any gem resources. And instead of spending on the current set to get gem cards, you're basically waiting to spend those resources on the next set when you're getting collection building. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that's another place where uh, second accounts help with that, even if you're in constructed. Like I would say, uh, you know, one of the things I, I haven't, because I'm not heavy constructed, I haven't fully explored this. But one way you might be able to take advantage of the two account system as a constructed player, even, is uh, is focusing a couple of accounts on uh, different areas of of constructed. Like if you find yourself, I love, I always have a mono red, and I always have, like maybe you could have an account that's this is my this is my teamer account. <laughs> You know, I focus on teamer growth here, and then I focus on the other colors on this other account. That's not going to work perfectly, of course, because if as soon as those cross over. But the point is you could set up some accounts that this account is focused on this type of deck that yeah. is going to make use of this type of card. Like I'm going to get control elements. Maybe that's the way to do it, right? Mm -hmm. This is going to be my control account. I'm going to focus on control staples. This is going to be my aggro account where I focus on aggro staples. Something like that could work. Uh, but it comes down to that... Uh, uh, optimizing wizards paying you gold to play yeah. and fi figuring out how you can make that work for you across mul multiple accounts. I, th Ryan, I, I, I think all advice is really, really good. Um, and I think that over the long term, I think it pays off big dividends. I think one of the things that at least I want to talk to you about, Sam might be like, I don't want to talk about this at all. Shane. Um, <laughs> I think the big, a uh, well, primary challenge I think a lot of players face, especially our listeners is the budget that's required to play historic and to keep up with that format. Because even if, let's say you started playing arena today, you could ostensibly say, hey, I like draft enough. I'm gonna play standard. It's a pretty small format right now and I can get a standard deck and start playing it. With historic, it's already a huge card pool. Mm -hmm. You have to, and you have to keep up with this forwards and backwards and even sort of like sideways growth with like, we see that in the, the mystical archive cards with the anthologies and stuff like that. Yeah. Historic's intimidating. You never know when they're going to dump, uh, all right, here's some new stuff you have to have. Yeah. Right. Like what, what are your general feelings? I don't know if you've given historic too much thought, but like if, if what are your general feelings and this is kind of your opinion on the mm -hmm. monet the monetization model of arena when it comes to historic, especially, you know, it's, it's a different type of player than maybe the, the I want to draft twice a week for free with gold type thing and slowly build my collection. Like what right. are the expectations on the historic players? I think are pretty different. Yeah. Historic is a tough one for me to speak to with much authority for a couple of reasons. Obviously it's not my primary way to play, but also the way that where historic was when I left wizards was in the, we were still in the question of like, what do we do at rotation? We have a rotation coming up. What happens to those cards? You know, and, and that was something we knew about from the get-go. I kind of think Historic is almost the uh, arena's Frankenstein monster, mm -hmm. Frankenstein's monster now, in that it was this thing that was created because of the need seen at the time 
So to, yeah, to slide back to when I was there and we were planning ahead, we all we had all these systems defined for for what was happening with standard, but we had not yet fully tackled what happens to cards that rotate out of standard on the system. You can't sell people digital magic cards and then have them become unplayable. Like literally you're just what casually challenging friends. I mean, at that time we didn't even have friend challenge, right? So like, like literally what are you doing with these cards? They can't just become relics of my collection. We need a place to play. We of course looked at something like um, we were looking at wild, you know, which is the hearthstone equivalent, right? And that's the baseline. The easiest thing to do is just say, okay, we're going to have a, a, a non-rotating format where all these cards go and live. But non-rotating formats are also scary as heck for wizards because that's the places where uh, players camp out and stop spending, right? I, I locked down my, my good modern deck and yeah, it cost me a little more up front, but now I'm done. You know, now there's, you know, I have a, as long as I get a core deck, I'm pretty no, good. You're, you're never done, Ryan. <laughs> yeah, well, you tell yourself that, right? <laughs> but, and that's the, but that's the beauty of, I think like maybe maybe they overthought that because because players are always looking to uh, to to do something and, and and new sets can impact old formats too in that way so like maybe you think you were done but now the deck that you thought you were done with isn't really a competitor anymore like it's been meted out of the meta game so like really you're done you're just gonna you're just gonna be stubborn and play this deck that wins forty percent of the time at best <laughs> like that doesn't seem right so. Uh, I get that. I think though, what I, what I, what I feel like is that wizards didn't have the economy fully fleshed out for historic, or maybe they just said to themselves, yeah, we're going to blow it so wide open Mm -hmm. that it's not really realistic to do it all. And there are plenty of games out there that do that. I'm playing some silly, uh, card battler right now. That's a, a effectively a free to play thing. That's trying to monetize through getting me to buy extra stuff. And it is it makes magic look uh, 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 practically moral, you know, when it comes to any kind of uh, questions about extracting value from customers. Like if I wanted to quote, buy my way to the best possible in this game I'm playing, it would, it, it's more money than I have. It's re- wow. like, well, just cause these, these new games can create these systems of rarity. that are endlessly deep. You know, the whole um, it's like combining, like, like imagine it, like imagine if magic, Okay, yes, sure, you've got, name your favorite, what's your favorite recent mythic? Arclight Phoenix. Okay, so (laughs) Arclight Phoenix. Yeah, so you have a play set of four Arclight Phoenixes, but what if I gave you the the chance to say, if you want to meld these four, your play set of Arclight Phoenixes, we're going to add a point of power and a point of toughness to them. Hmm. Whoa. Okay. But you need four of them. You got to get four of them. You squish them together. And now your arc like Phoenix is a four, three. And so once you've applied that kind of system to your game, the, the, the depth of thieving, you know, like of, of what you could say is possible is insane. So then take it to historic. And suddenly I'm a little bit less worried. That's like, yeah, there's a million decks, but what were you expecting? Do you, you really expect that for free to play, you should be able to have access to, uh, everything or let me put it at, to you the historic players as me a game designer to you the historic players yeah what do you think is fair what what um you don't get any physical cards but it looks like this game's gonna last for a long time so you do get these digital cards for indefinitely um what do you want to pay for an average density of rith- mythics and rares for a, a digital like if you just want it day one what do you think you should pay what what i my general feeling is I would like 
everyone who could drop 50 bucks a month to have access to 75% of the card pool, like 75% of the decks, perhaps. I mean, maybe, you know, that, that number could be fudged a little bit, but I, I think that people who want to drop a video games worth of money a month mm-hmm. should be able to play the format without feeling overly restricted. And, and where do you think it's at? Cause this is where, again, I'm not, this is not my economic model and not where my head's at. So you tell me, where is it now? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, like the, the one of the issues that we have faced is that we didn't start playing historic from day one. So we mm, did a we did yeah, a yeah. we did a fairly significant buy in um, late last year, I believe. And so we kind of played catch up, which is just like we're gonna buy a bunch of stuff. Mm. We're just gonna, we're just gonna we're just gonna use the best card in the game, the credit card, and and <laughs> and buy in. And then keeping up is a different matter. And I I don't know if we have, I think what we're going to do is uh, after maybe six months or so of play is kind of say, what did we spend and where did we get Mm -hmm. type thing? And just sort of have a realistic, um, maybe just like sort of a, a, here's some tips that we've learned after six months or here's where, you know, here's where we know. I think it's maybe, it's maybe close. It's maybe close to like 50, 60 bucks a month keeps you in the format, but then they do stuff like this, which is like with the, the, the mystical archives where it's like yeah. surprise uh, a, a number yeah. of the cards are upshifted in rarity too. Mm. So like if you want to get ephemerates, you're spending rares on a common. You know what I mean? Or if you want to get faithless looting, that's like a rare as well type thing. So like there are these these valuable cards that will likely be want to want to be experimented with, it, it sort of punishes experimentation. So a lot of times it's like I need to wait and see what's going to be good. What what I wanted to ask, though, is we're kind of beating we're we're around this topic. Is like, what do you think Watsi wrestles with when it comes to monetization? Like, what do you think the push and the pull really is there? And I think the it's it's tempting just to be like, yeah, they want to make as much money as possible without making players stop playing. But I'm sure there's more nuance there. I think in broad strokes, it's recognizing that the game has uh, low budget players who you need in your system you got to have a heavy huge population of digital players especially to uh to make sure your game stays healthy so on the one hand it has to be legit free to play without causing players to bounce off Uh, but you also need to monetize the top end your superstars we we call them a lot of the industry term for the top end of players is often whales but we felt that was pretty derogatory and and demeaning to our most important group of of players so we just call them superstars at wizards and uh so monetizing your superstars in a way that they're really happy about they that you know you don't want to but you got to monetize them because that's what helps keep the players who can't afford it in the game you basically want your way your, i almost said it too you want your superstars to subsidize your free-to-play players because then everybody's happy, mm-hmm. and you you see it even in uh, in paper efforts as well, like the uh, the the masterpieces and the the idea of inserting a hyper rare thing in a booster box that's going to show up in one every six booster boxes. It creates this uh, exciting high end card, yeah, but it also affects the inevitable uh, arbitrage hating economy that says what is a opened box worth, right? And by inserting these high chase cards as as super rares, effectively, the idea, part of the idea of that is, great, uh, 
these boxes have to divide to like meet out to a hundred bucks each, right? Cause that's what people are paying for the box. We put these super cards in a lot of that hundred dollars per box value is going to get tied up in these super cards that our superstars love. And then that means that the, that mythic, that regular old mythic that what, that would have been a $50 card in a world without, uh, uh, masterpieces, ma the presence of masterpiece means that, the average value of cards in the box drives those rares, regular rares and mythics down. Mm -hmm. So uh, people see the fancy cards wizards are doing and, and can sometimes feel it's very cash grabby, which is, of course is a disingenuous way to, of course it's a cash grab. They're a publicly traded company. Their whole point is to grab cash, but they want to do it in a way that, uh, that makes the most players happy. You know, you, it's a cash. The, the goal is to cash grab while leaving your players happy. Yeah. And that's kind of the point of that whole thing. And, and that's kind of what they want to achieve on uh, free to play as well. So that's where you see cosmetics coming in that you, yeah. you get the cosmetics lovers to come in and spend real dollars to make their world prettier so that hopefully the free to play players uh, are subsidized and can be in the system successfully. It has felt, I think, and I think the audience might agree or mostly would agree, is that it doesn't feel like a lot of the free-to-play is as subsidized as people would like, right? Where it's like, sure. I think that I've I've played other card games like Runeterra or something like that where like you could, you the there's a ton of cosmetics, like just oodles of them. And that's how uh, Riot is able to monetize is through cosmetics. And then you earn cards very efficiently and it's a reward for playing. And I think that that's something that, arena and watsi hasn't seemed to latch on as strongly to like one thing you mentioned that i think you, you mentioned weld melding cards to make a better card like why can't we meld wild cards mm. to, to make a to make a better wild card it just seems like some easy quality of life stuff that's like no we're not doing that shane i i want i think i have a theory for that maybe ryan can agree or disagree but wizards doesn't need to do that you know, Riot and Runeterra, I think they want to be more like Magic, and I think they want that pedigree and reputation. Sure. Wizards already has earned it, so perhaps they're in a position where they can be a little bit less generous with their distribution model. Like, I think one thing that people might say is, like, they already have the best game. They don't need to make it cheap. <laughs> and I don't, and, and so, like, that's something that I don't, but then like there's the difficulty in getting new players, right? Like yeah, they certainly leverage the their the they know they have a, a hot game, you know, they know they've got a, a solid base of players for sure, and that's definitely part of the motivation. Um, so let's see. To go back to your question, though, uh, you know, why not, for example, uh, make this change that allows wild cards to be used more efficiently, right? Mm -hmm. The answer is they could do that. And, and certainly uh, one of the main, you know, I often tell people, if you're, you're giving feedback to game designers, uh, tell them where it hurts. Don't tell them what to do about it. Mm -hmm. Like when you go to the doctor, you don't say, I've got an appendicitis. Yeah. You say, I've got a pain in my side. And then they figure it out if it's appendicitis, right? Yeah. Like the pain is we have, we've got 250 common wilds and 260 uncommon wilds, but we've got one common, like rare wild. Right. And, and so um, that inefficiency in the system is part of the economic design and part of the economic model. Right. Uh, some of my co colleagues that I work with made some of the most impressive spreadsheets I've ever seen. Lee Sharp is a, an Excel genius uh, and 
the the modeling that they've done on the arena economy is bonkers and it's all planned out it's all run through oh it feels planned uh, out for sure yeah, <laughs> yeah. And, and but it's all tested right and they all and so basically you've got this machine that is built to run at a certain piece of efficient at a certain rate of efficiency right and so much of magic player feedback just simply boils down to I would like to play for cheaper, mm-hmm. yeah. right? <laughs> and that was your feedback right there, effectively, right? Um, oh, yeah. Why, why can't I uh, combine these uh, wild cards to do this to make super wild cards? And be, and because that would make it cheaper yeah, for you, Yeah, right? even, even if it's not as efficient. Even if it was like 50 uncommons became a rare, Absolutely. it would feel good. Yeah, right. It would be, and that feel good may be worth it. But here's what I, here's the other thing I try to make very clear to the consumers of these types of products. Let's say you're successful. Let's say you you successfully communicate to wizards. It hurts when I do this. It hurts when I do this. When I go into this thing and I see those wild cards there, it hurts. Can you please make it stop hurting? Yeah. And they listen to you and they do that. They do what you say. I promise you they change the efficiency of the engine somewhere yes, else exactly. to get that money back. So they can absolutely solve your pain. But don't for a second think that they're going to solve your pain by giving you money back. They're going to solve your pain by taking away the UI thing that makes you painful, mm-hmm. that, that yeah. fills you with pain. And then they're going <laughs> to shave off value somewhere exactly. else so that the engine's efficiency stays the same. Yeah, I want it more efficient for me, Ryan. <laughs> yeah. Of, yeah, you want to play Magic for cheaper. We all do. Yeah. And uh, Wizards knows that. And But they are, they're they're going to hit a certain level of, you know, they got their targets. They're promising this much revenue for, for this group of executives and this group of shareholders and they have all these models pointing to how that's going to happen but the good news is sometimes they do learn that they're getting more money from hey cosmetics are blowing up like this is great we're doing this over here we can't let's go ahead and uh and solve that problem we'll we'll give some back to the community over here It, it let me tell you the, the efficiency of the engine is always going to have that bare minimum. And if they get a little extra, sometimes they're going to keep that extra too. Like, sweet, this is doing better than we thought. We're just more profitable today. But basically, I just want people to understand that having your pain solved is one thing. Having the price lowered is another thing. And yeah. you're rarely going to get both at the same time. So, Ryan, you know, we can't keep you here all day, though. We have a spare bedroom in my condo if you'd like to move in. And I can just oh, look at this guy pick your brain bedroom. constantly. Wow. Careful, uh, I just had huge plumbing issues. I might need a place to stay for <laughs> for a little bit. So, you know, I realize that there may be certain things that you can't or won't talk about because of, you know, your relationship with Wizards or, you know, what you were even privy to. But we have prepared a little brief segment here called the Dive Down <laughs> Conspiracy Theory Corner. <laughs> Bring it. Um, you know, you can be as brief or as long-winded as you like. Uh, Want to run some, some questions for based on my experience and based on things that we've heard from our, our community and, and other players. Ryan, why does the shuffler hate me? Uh, you're a bad person. Mm, how does it... Have you ever thought about that? I haven't. I mean, have you looked <laughs> inward at why the shuffler might be punishing you? I think you know why. If you look deep in your heart, I think you know why the shuffler's punishing you. <laughs> it's because of my nine accounts. Uh-huh. Wait, nine, huh? That's dedicated. Uh he is a podcast co-host. If, if you want to to, be, to, to touch on uh, Shuffler Truthers for a second, I, I spent a lot of time even before Wizards uh, champ, you know, defending defending randomization in uh, in forums and whatnot. 
Uh, when I got into game design, I developed Ryan's first law of game design, which is if a game has overt randomization and a forum, there is a thread on the broken shuffler. There's a thread on the broken RNG. It, and show me, show me an exception. I dare you. Try, try to find me a, find me an exception and pr- uh, disprove my rule. If you, boy, you sign up for this game that has a ton of variants. Uh, people are terrible at looking at something without doing the hard data work and coming up with accurate interpretations. We all have confirmation bias when we feel like we're being. Um, worked over by the system. We look for that. And then when it happens again, we go, aha. Uh, We look at unlikely things after the fact and say, that was so unlikely. How could that ever possibly be? Well, it turns out every configuration, every way that you can stack those 60 cards is equally possible. So that one that looks completely normal to you and that one that looks completely bizarre to you because it has 14 lands in a row or whatever, Mm -hmm. those two stacks of 60 cards were equally possible. And that's just hard for some people to process, and they take it out on uh, randomization. But as a uh, as a player, if you are a, a spiky person looking to improve your game, you've got to understand that every bit of time and mental effort that you give to feeling crappy about shuffling is time that you could be actively spending on something better in your life, something that actually improves your magic results, or is just has you know is. Better. Like it's just, just such a waste of time to worry about uh, the randomization. Randomization is one of the easiest problems in computer science. It's 101. It's solved. Mm. The other thing I like to say to people who shuffle or truthers is um, the uh, every video game, ev- every game uses the the Fisher Yates shuffle, the the Newth shuffle. There's an algorithm that you can cut and paste it. You can go find it on the internet right now. It's the Fisher Yates shuffle. So if you think your game's shuffler is busted, I want you to tell me uh, what part of the Fisher Yates shuffle is wrong. Can you help? Can you tell me what part of that code should be changed? Because it's known. Everybody uses it. It's a solved thing. Stan, did, so, anyway. did, you, did you all have the Fisher Yates shuffle at your wedding? Oh yeah. That's what our first dance was to. <laughs> <laughs> So speaking of field bads and randomization, what do you know about Arena's MMR? Like, how, how do people do people get assigned like a secret MMR? Like, am I when I'm yeah, on, when, I'm on when I'm on the ladder? Like, am I up against people who are like about my skill level? We, we try. So uh, that is actually one of the areas that I worked heavily on. Uh, some uh, I, I did, uh, uh, yeah, figuring out rank. And matchmaking was uh, was I mean they changed it all by the time you know we were all midstream and I left and and so I'm sure they they changed things from where I had it but uh, basically there's a you know there's a question of uh, how much matchmaking do you want in a game like this uh, the, the you know I call it you know it's it's a a, a winner's tax you know a skill tax mm-hmm. because if you if you if you're pushing people towards 50 cent, 50% towards ma- with matchmaking, you're taxing highly skilled players by making them play other highly skilled players and lowering their win rate, right? And uh, that is something that you want to, you generally want to keep players at the same skill level playing each other because it makes for the best games. Uh, but it also protects your newer players from bouncing off the game. If you can keep uh, the top players up there playing against each other and the fresh meat down uh, bouncing off each other down below, the fresh meat's likely to stay around a lot longer rather than if they're just going to get ground up a- against the top competition. 
there is there is your rank, and then there's your MMR, and there are different things for sure. Uh, your your matchmaking rank is generally the under the hood hidden algorithm that a company uses to kind of decide where you're at. Usually that's a, like ours was a uh, you know the the Elo is the uh, the classic one. Uh, we used Glico, which is basically, so I, I don't want to get too into the technical weeds, but suffice it to say, like chess, you might, uh, chess ratings, you know, when you see 1600 uh, as the default, as the medium on Magic Online, for example, that that's this ELO thing where you say, okay, every time I play, or to give a, a quick overview of ELO, ELO basically says every time you play a match, there's a pie of points. And how that pie of points gets distributed to the winner or loser depends on how how big each player's elo is. So if we're identical at 1600 and the pie is worth 24 points, then we each have 12 on the line. If I win, I'm going to gain 12. If I lose, I'm going to lose 12. And, and the same thing for you. If uh, you are a, the worst player and I'm the best, uh, it's going to be as extreme as 23-1, which is to say, if I, the best player, win, I'm going to go plus one on my rating. And, but since you're, whereas if you beat me, we don't expect you to beat me because I, I have the higher rating. Mm -hmm. If you beat me, you're getting plus 23. So it's effectively, if I play uh, that person, I have 23 times as much at risk because I need to win that often to make sure that I don't lose ground on ELO. And that's how they, so that's the fundamental of ELO. Mm -hmm. uh, it does not do a great job of, it, it needs a lot of data before it's accurate though. So Glico is an evolution of ELO that helps uh, make better guesses earlier on about how good, how how confident are we that this rating we have for you is correct based on what we know. And you can do things like look against who they've played against, but it's also really uh convoluted to expose to players. It's not that the designers are necessarily hiding this for, um, some expose it. Some just use this. Yeah. Your, your, again, your, your score is 1600 and all that's just being, uh, ELO is being chopped up for mm -hmm. you. But a lot of places, uh, wizards included preferred to kind of hide that level of stuff under the hood and present to you a nice clean, you are platinum one, mm -hmm. you know, you are gold two, right? That's just a lot easier to digest for players and uh, gives nice moments of graphic, like, ding, you've leveled up. That's cool. <laughs> oh yeah. You know, made that, that feel good. Yeah, exactly. Everybody likes that feel, right? Um, and then, uh, so how does matchmaking work in the queues itself? Then you get into the, the, what the fundamentally important things are to the whole matchmaking process. And uh, my friend and former colleague, Robert Schuster, always liked to say, uh, uh, Q, Q is king. The Q is king. You, you want, which is to say, fire, Q rate, fire rate, fire, yeah. fire, fire. You don't want to have players waiting around. Uh, and if you are too strict on your skill-based matchmaking and you make players wait around for a perfect match, then you're going to lose players bouncing off because they leave your queue, and and then that's a cascade failure situation. Like if you're wait, if your if your system is causing people to abandon the queue because it's taking too long to find the right match, you've lowered the population in your queue, and it's going to take even longer for the next person. Right? right. That's the cascade failure problem. You really you got to avoid that. And so that's why fundamentally, the goal of any matchmaking system is reasonable matches quickly. Mm -hmm. That's that's the top line goal of any good matchmaking system is reasonable matches quickly and that means that they're going to look to find perfect matches they'll check the box who's in who's who's waiting 
Is there a perfect matches? Great. But if not, they're quite quickly going to branch out and be willing to yeah. uh, match you with either less skilled or uh, the other factor in uh, arena matchmaking is record. Like basically it's uh, length of time in queue, win loss record and matchmaking record. Like those are the three things that the, the arena system is really looking at to decide when to pair you up. And uh, they initially, they even announced like initially when it launched, um, the uh, matchmaking priority, uh, sorry, the MMR pri was a higher priority than record, mm -hmm. right? So, so the 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 chief concern was making sure that yeah, you were playing against an equally skilled player. But the thing is, in limited, especially, I mean, that kind of works in constructed because you're just you're you're everybody's deck is kind of equivalently powerful if you're all playing good card good decks in the format. But in limited, sometimes you draft a pile, and it was so miserable to be, I'm 0-2, uh, facing elimination, and you, someone with an identical MMR, like we are a perfect match in terms of our skill, you happen to have drafted a monster and you're currently 5-0. and uh, The previous system would have prioritized that and said, hey, these are two perfectly matched players. Let's throw the 5-0 guy against the 2-0 person and uh, because they are, quote, perfectly matched. There was a lot of feel-bads. Again, uh, the the... the People spoke and they said, it hurts when I do this. <laughs> uh, wizards, it hurts when I go into this queue and I'm having the worst draft of my season and I get paired against a monster just because they happen to have the same MMR. Mm -hmm. Wizards acknowledged that that was wrong and they switched the, the priority to be a record-based. So uh, you'll more often now in uh, Limited on Arena say, wow, I'm diamond and I'm playing against, uh, you know, gold or platinum or something. That's kind of weird. But what it probably means is that's a platinum player who's got a, a very good deck and you've got to, and you have the same, you know, win-loss record. So uh, those are the the main considerations, but really the, 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 the top line goal again is to avoid any approach of cascade failure of causing players to bounce off your system because they're frustrated that you're taking too long to also because when you're hiding everything but the rank uh you that's why you hide the mmr as well mm. because then when i have had to as a designer set the system up to pair you with someone with a significantly worse mmr than you because if i if i waited any longer you would have been pissed off about how long it took to play you don't know it's a bad match. <laughs> like uh, you don't know. Like you don't. If you don't get to see those numbers, you don't know how bad the match is. Um, mm -hmm. But and that's very important for wizards to be able to keep the queue time healthy without really bothering players and feeling like I'm getting mismatched. Well, so I guess it turns out arena is good. After all, I mean, it's it's, it's not trying to hurt me. It's not trying to hurt you, but it would like your money. Yeah. <laughs> uh, speaking of money, Ryan, uh, self-promotion time. Tell people about what uh, your stream, where they can find you, uh, what you're doing on that stream, all that kind of stuff. Sure thing. I'm at uh, Twitch TV slash Going Optimal, and I stream Arena Limited Monday through Friday, 9 a.m. Pacific. I've also been participating in the Hunter Pence Sweatsuit Invitational on Thursday afternoons Pacific. That's uh, Hunter Pence is a former 
Major League Baseball uh, four-time All-Star outfielder turned magic streamer, and he's used his uh, MLB clout to draw in all sorts of awesome uh, magic celebrities and streamers to participate in this Thursday event. Awesome. That's been going on. That's really fun. Uh, I think I've drafted him on my fantasy team once or twice. Back yeah, in the day. there you go. Exactly. And now you can now he now you can draft with him instead of him. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so uh, uh, and you can find me on Twitter at Ryan Spain. You can follow at Going Optimal as well, but that's just a schedule announcement. If you want to uh, interact with me, you're going to want to follow at Ryan Spain. And that's the main things. I'm on other social, but uh, uh, it did, oh, I should say Discord. That would be a, a travesty for me to not to mention my incredible Discord. Uh, that's one of the fun things that's emerged from all this. Uh, the community—I knew I was going to try to be building a community, but seeing uh, the Going Optimal Discord uh, blossom into the awesome place for Magic players to hang out—that it is—has been heartwarming and, and one of my better experiences in all of this. Yeah, and, right. Isn't that the best? Having like a yeah, community of people that are awesome. It is. It's really neat, and uh, the. Uh, one of the things that ha- happens a lot, um, there's a third-party website uh, called uh, MTGA Draft, and we, it's not .com, uh, it, there's a convoluted, uh, I can give you the link later, but mtgadraft.herokuapp.com is one place to look for it. But basically, what you do is you can draft with friends on this third-party website, export your resulting drafts over to Arena, and then use the friend challenge system to battle. That's what I do with viewers on every Friday. It's really fun, and it's free. Like, oh, you need a collection, but basically, you want to talk about uh, free drafting on Arena, uh, join my Going Optimal Discord and get in with that crew, and they're firing basically free drafts all the time. Now, there's not prize support either, because it's not uh, uh, Wizards is not running the event for you, but if you just want to enjoy the fun of drafting, it's a great community for that as well. So uh, you can check out the Going Optimal Discord for that. Awesome. And we'll have links to all of these in our show notes. For sure. Ryan, thanks so much for being here. Your depth of experience, knowledge, uh, insider, inside baseball speak has been uh, really valuable for us and I'm sure the listeners. Check out Ryan's stream. He he is a great stream. Uh, if you want to see someone do some good drafting on Magic Arena with a, with a budget-minded focus, I think that that is a great place to go and a good community as well. So yeah, Ryan, anything else that you, anything else you want to promote, need to promote, need to say before we do the final sign off? Get vaccinated, folks. Let's get back to the world. Yeah, man. Oh my gosh. Can't wait for number two. Um, That wraps up this bonus episode. If you haven't yet, subscribe to us. You can get new episodes as soon as they come out. Thanks again to Ryan Spain for coming on. Thanks again to the bands Nowhere and Space Blood for letting us use their music. If this is the first time you're listening to The Dive Down, you're coming in because you're a, a fan of Ryan, uh, want to know more about us. Every Friday morning, new episodes come out. Uh, we talk about modern, historic, pioneer with the casual spike mindset. So if that resonates with you, if that idea resonates with you, come check us out. And until Next week, next bonus episode, get out there and go optimal! Oh yeah, thanks for having me. Welcome to Ryan Spain Talking. <laughs>
Love it or leave it, <laughs> up to you. 